Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Raina. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Raina, as was just mentioned, and I am recovering from compulsive overeating. Hello, hello to everybody. Compulsive overeating, bulimia, and anorexia. So I've had uh, this disease in all of its aspects. I've done it all, <clears throat> and I've been really good at it. Uh, that's the thing with practicing something for a long, long time. You get really good at what you practice. And part of being in recovering is to get really, really good at practicing recovery, um, which, especially when you're a newcomer at the beginning, um, it's like really like learning a foreign language. It really can be very tough. So, um, what it was like... Um, what it was like is um, when I was a little girl I um, by the age of two years old I decided I pretty much didn't want to be here and I stopped eating now if you can't imagine for a two year old to stop eating uh, things must, must, must not have been too great at home um, and so the answer to that was actually my mother and the doctor decided at that time that it would be a good idea to starve me for a few more days and eventually I'd start eating, <clears throat> which is basically what happened. Um, I was actually a thin child growing up. Um, now, I was into a lot of sports and dance and all things like that, so, you know, and I was growing, so maybe that was part of it. I don't remember being um, being an addict at, in in those days, except that I did like sugar. I did like sweets um, and bread. Yeah, I like bread. I'm French, so, you know, I like baguette. Um, I uh, remember, I would say, between the ages of seven years old and 14 or 15 years old, um, I remember every, t- every time I came home, I remember doing so with an incredible amount of anxiety in the pit of my stomach, a lot of fear, uh, because I didn't feel safe, uh, because I didn't know what I was going to get when I got home. Was it going to be the nice mom? Was it, was it going to be the rager mom? Was I going to get beaten? Uh, was I going to have to console her? So it was a difficult uh, entry, re-entry into my house. It felt like sometimes entering a, uh, a war zone or a tomb. And my stepfather and my mother didn't talk to each other uh, for those years because of something tragic that had happened. There was a big elephant in the room that nobody talked about, which was my, um, my baby sister's death. And what happened is that all the anger, all the unspoken stuff 
would get played out at the dinner table. And I was the scapegoat. And uh, there were things, there were foods I didn't like to eat. And my stepfather, especially meat, I hated meat. And my stepfather's reaction to that was that that was unacceptable. And I would say I cried at every single meal. Uh, I remember him, I would be chewing my food and refusing to swallow it. And, um, and he would like, you know, squeeze my face and mm, force me to swallow the food. So, needless to say, after I left home, the first thing I did was become a vegetarian um, for 10 years. And the other thing that I realized is that I had a lot of issues just even around sitting at a, at a table with other people eating. And I, in my recovery, it took me several years to be able to sit down at a table with more than one other person without having an anxiety attack. Um, so... When did my actual eating disorder start? I remember exactly. The first part of my disease was compulsive overeating. I was just a straight compulsive overeater. And that started when I was about, I was 16, and I made a decision because I realized that I had always tried to be this really good girl. Um, and And I realized at that time that these people that I had been trying to be so good for, um, I felt like they didn't really care about me. And at that time, my mother and my stepfather divorced. She went her way, he went his way, and I was just alone. And, um, And I made this decision, well, if they don't care about me, then why should I care about myself? And it was a strange way to think. But the moment I made that decision, why should I care about myself, that's when the food came in. I I got this, suddenly became aware of this incredible hole, you know, inside me. And and I turned to food. I turned to food to fill that hole, and it, it was like my comforter, it was my mother, it was a way to love myself, uh, to take care of myself. Um, it's like, you know, when you don't want to listen to a kid that's like being annoying, you'll just go here, you know, go sit in front of the TV. And me, it was eat, you know, eat a lot of food, eat a lot of sugar. So, um, that decision, um, has been a very hard decision to unmake, right? And what happened is, as I grew into my disease um, it got worse and worse and I and I got fatter and fatter and of course part of me was also really vain and I was getting fatter just when you want to look you know pretty um, and, and, it, and it was also completely unacceptable because you know both my parents were these beautiful people my mother used to be a model so having an overweight child was just unacceptable um, and I remember going on my first major diet uh, in my late teens. I think I was 18. Um, and I had, at the time, a huge amount of willpower. And I had it for many years. 
which is probably why it took me so long, you know, to get recovery. Um, I had a huge amount of willpower. And I got on this very strict diet that I made up, which has a cup of this in the morning, a cup of this in the, during the day, and a cup of this at night. That was it. And I did it for months because I had a lot of weight to lose. And then, you know, it only said to do it for, like, you know, I think the variation on it, on the diet that I did was like, well, you can only do this for a certain amount of time, but I did it for months. And then, of course, uh, what we learn in this program and what happened to me is that at one point, when you go an extreme one way of starving and dieting yourself, what's going to happen? You're going to go the other way, right? Your body at one point, everybody's, everything, everybody, everybody here, everybody inside, um, all my organs, my cells, is going to go into a revolution and say, you know, enough of that, and the other thing is going to happen, which is the binging. And what happened is that I had starved myself for so long, and, I, and, I, and of course, you know, your stomach gets smaller, that that first time when I overate, um, which is like, I think, a, whole, a box of cookies or something like that, yeah, I was in England at the time, so they were like English cookies. Um, <laughs> tea biscuits. Something. Um, I got sick. I ate that whole bulb, and I got sick. And this light bulb came on and was like, there is my solution. Um, and that took me, you know, for many years, I went back and forth between, that was just the beginning of my bulimia. And that went back and forth for many, many years. Um, and it just got worse and worse. What I mean by that is, you know, I started doing this, you know, I'll throw up maybe once a day or something. And then, you know, by the end when I was really, it was getting really bad in my Late 20s, I would say I could do it, binge and throw up up to 10, 15 times a day. Now, um, that can kill you, right? And I was walking around, I was in the streets of New York, and I remember I would be passing out, like I'd have to sit down so I wouldn't pass out. Because what happened is that I would go into these extremes also of dieting, and I would still throw up. So even if I was eating very little, uh, I was still throwing it up. So I would be anorexic and bulimic at the same time or anorexic and throwing up at the same time and binging and throwing up at the same time I would be throwing up the whole time basically even when I had bouts of anorexia and in terms of numbers I've been um, under 100 pounds I've been like 99 pounds I think um, which I was totally thrilled about at the time <laughs> like finally you know I had won something or I'd was in control. I was thinner than everybody else, whatever. And then at my highest weight, uh, I cannot tell you because I would not weigh myself at the time and I destroyed all pictures of me uh, as a fat person because I was uh, too vain. But um, I can tell you, I have, I have a picture, I remember seeing a picture of me after I'd lost at least like 20 or 30 pounds and I still looked fat. So... I would, pro I would say probably approaching 200 pounds would have been my high weight. Um, all of this, you know, throughout it all, I, I would say my, my most insane in my head was when I was anorexic. 
And because I was, all the time I was, first of all, because I wasn't eating anything and I was throwing up on top of it. And um, because I was always in terror because I knew I was going to get fat again. And and when I was thin, I was also, um, I would get a lot more attention and a lot of feelings would come up about stuff that I couldn't deal with. Um, so I was definitely on my most insane as an anorexic, which is interesting, but there you have it. And I didn't know why I was doing it. That's the thing. I just thought I knew something was wrong with me. I mean, I, I, I thought I was crazy. I thought I didn't know how to live, which is true. I had to learn that in here. And I, my biggest solution was to try to kill myself, which is where that disease took me. For you know, I, I tried twice. In one year, I almost died three times. Um, but you know, my higher power had other plans, and and I ended up. Um, you know, I don't remember who told me about OA or how I got there, but all I know is that there was a meeting across the street from me. And if it had been any further away, I don't think I would have made it. And my first meeting was in 1985 in New York City. So I've been coming, how many years is that? 20-something years, right? Um, Recovery process has been a... A really interesting process for me because I took my will back many times um, when I was a kid I felt completely powerless and it was not a good thing it was um, really hard and the last thing I wanted ever when I grew up was to feel powerless again or to have to give up my power to anything so, <clears throat> the first step in the 12 steps is we admitted we were powerless over our substance and that our lives had become unmanageable. So, to admit that I was powerless um, was a really, really tough one for me. And uh, I have to say that I think the biggest thing I've learned in terms of my recovery is that you have to start right where you are, not where you want to be. And you have to accept exactly where you are, not where you think you should be. And and in, in growing up, you know, through the 12 steps, I think... For me, it's like I have to have like step zero between before the step one, which is to accept um, where I was, to accept that I was angry, to accept that I didn't want to be powerless, to accept that um, the idea of turning my will in my life to a power greater than myself, which I had had to do growing up, right, to a power greater than me, my, my mother, my stepfather, was like, there's no way that's going to happen again. And I, um, I had, I've had um, three relapses in, 
you know, Readers Anonymous. I'm now eight and a half years uh, abstinent this last time around. And, um, and I think the reason I got abstinent this last time is that I gave up trying to figure it out. I gave up trying to be in control of anything. It took me that many years to accept that actually in saying that I was powerless over this one thing, it was opening a whole new world of possibilities. And that I had also by then um, come to a very different place in terms of a relationship with a power greater than myself. Um, which I think is the, the key to this program. And, and I tried to do it, you know, I tried for many years, I tried to do it right. Uh, by, by that I mean I was still trying to like, okay, I'm not going to have any sugar, I'm not going to have any wheat, I'm not going to have any of this, I'm not going to eat that, and um, then I'm going to have this perfect abstinence. And that worked for a time, but eventually something uh, would come up, um, and I would lose that abstinence. Um, And I had to go to a place that was so big, and so loving, and so gentle, and so accepting, you know, that had such big arms. And, uh, and, and that place said, you know what, sweetheart? You are okay exactly the way you are. And I love you even when your head is in the toilet. And I love you even when you're being an idiot when you're being controlling when you're doing it wrong I had to have a voice like that with me to find an abstinence that could take me through everything could be with me through anything and that could teach me how to very slowly, little by little, as I worked those steps, teach me how to love and accept myself. Because they, um, for me, you know, this disease, it's like I either I wanted to disappear, right? to be invisible in one way or another, either by getting really fat or really skinny. I wanted to die, kill myself, and and hurt myself. Because there was something in me that felt like I shouldn't be here. Like I didn't have a right to be here. And I learned that this huge hole that was inside me Um, could not be filled up by anything but 
something incredibly loving and accepting, whatever it was. Uh, I grew up half Jewish, half Catholic, so I was in trouble right from the start. (laughs) And um, my love of mythology and story has taken me on, you know, a huge journey in terms of connecting to a higher power, and now I need a power, I I need a lot, so um, I have a lot of gods. Um, And some are feminine, and some are masculine, and I need both. Sometimes I need that mother, divine mother energy with me to help me. Sometimes I need the father. Sometimes I need the sister. Sometimes I need, you know, uh, a cat (laughs) or two. Um, And certainly um, it's whatever I need, you know. It's whatever it is I need in the moment. That's what's important. Um, there's a passage in this um, in the big book that I read. It took me a few times, you know, to finally read that little spot. But it was so amazing to me. Um, and it was in the, it's on, in my book, it's on page 84, and it's part of step 10. Um, and it says, And we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. For by this time, sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, tempted we recoil from it as from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally, and we will find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude toward liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. We're not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we have been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is our experience. That is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. When I read that, I think it was uh, the third time around, I was like, okay, that's what I want. If I can get that by working the steps, if that's what I can get if I stay in fit spiritual condition, then I'm in the game. I'm staying. And, and I worked the steps um, because of this. I worked the steps the third time around, I think, more deeply and thoroughly than I ever worked them, which means that I did admit I was powerless. I remembered how insane I was with food, with the amounts of food that I kept eating and never it was never enough because the hole I was trying to fill could not be filled by the food. Um, I worked to get a power greater than myself. Uh, some days, you know, I spent weeks hugging a tree, 
because it connected me to that great mother, to the earth, and that's what I needed. Uh, prayed and meditated every day, twice a day, any time I needed it. It was like, okay, I need help. And in my work, you know, before entering work, uh, entering the door, it was like, okay, I don't know how to do this, you do this for me. With everything in my life. Of course, I would take my will back, because we do that, because we're human, we do it all the time. And it was like, oh, honey, you're taking your will back again. You know that doesn't work too well. It's okay. I love you anyway. So, instead of the the voice that I had all the time, you know, that hated me so much, as I worked the steps, uh, I started to be connected to that deeper voice. You know, that loving voice. And... Um, and it's a choice, you know. Do I listen to the voice that tells me I am, you know, what do you do anything? What's the point? Who cares? You know, you're a waste of time. Look at you. You're old. You're ugly. You know, how can you wear those pants? You know, your thighs are too big or you got cellulite or God knows what else. You know, that voice, that's all about what you look like and you're not good enough. And now, you know, there's that other voice that's really compassionate and loving and sweet to me. And I get to choose who am I going to listen to, you know. And sometimes the nasty voice wins for a little while. But I know her too well. And I know where it leads. So... I'll get on my knees, I'll pray, I'll call someone, um, I'll go for a walk, hug a tree, whatever, whatever I need to do. But these promises to me, right, this idea that I am free, that I am protected at all times, that I don't have to be afraid of anything or any food, um, for the most part, that's what I have today in my life, which is pretty amazing. There's no, there's no bad food in my life. Now, what's extraordinary about that is that my food has changed hugely um, over the course of these, you know, years, and especially in the last eight years. When I got, when I Regain my abstinence. The last time I lost my abstinence eight years ago, uh, I had spent a week with my mother, and it was obviously too many days. <laughs> um, and, and I, yeah, in the same, same uh, apartment with her. Uh, I have seen her since then, but now I don't see her for as long a time, and I, I stay in a hotel, which is much better you know self-care is a huge recovery for me in this program um, but my food has changed hugely and when I first got back into program after that week break um, I got a new sponsor and I behaved like a rebellious child 
by that I mean that it's like, okay, I'm powerless anyway. You know, God is supposed to take care of this, so fine, I'm going to eat whatever I want. And and see what happens. And I remember starting out, you know, my dinner would be like this huge box of Trader Joe's cookies or whatever. And then I'll call, you know, I'd call my sponsor and say, I eat a whole box of cookies for dinner. You know, expecting her to be horrified or to tell me, you know, whatever. And all I would get from her was, well, did you enjoy it? (laughs) And that response stunned me to no end. It just completely stunned me. It took all the wind out of my sails, like all the rebellious anger thing, you know, like, what do you mean? Uh, sort of, maybe, uh, the beginning. Um, and, and it was this level of acceptance and allowing myself to do, you know, everything wrong in the beginning that really, really shifted things in, in my head, started shifting things in my head that no matter what I did, there was complete love and acceptance on the other end. And I really needed that. And slowly but surely, I, you know, as I worked the steps, and for her it was always about the steps. It's like, you know, that's what it was about. We hardly ever talked about food except when I insisted on it to tell her how bad a girl I was. Um, she always brought it back to this is a spiritual program. Let's work the steps. Did you pre-meditate today? Are you working on your moral inventory? And um, and as I worked, it's like these things started falling away. Literally, it's like, you know, I'll turn around and like it'd be weeks and I realize, oh my God, I haven't eaten this food in like weeks and I don't even want it. How does that happen to a compulsive overeater? And I started, you know, loving and accepting myself slowly but surely. Slowly, very slowly, but surely. More and more. And and today I, you know, I think I eat incredibly healthy, like shockingly healthy. Um, and I want to care for this body, you know. I want to give it stuff that makes it feel good. Um... I eat more, like, small meals several times a day because it works better for, for me. Um, as a bulimic, eating too much at once is just not a good idea. And I have to say, when I, um, when I got abstinent again eight years ago, eight and a half years ago, um, bottom line abstinence was just not throwing up. And... And then it took like a year or two before I, you know, it was like no binging and not throwing up. Because it just became too uncomfortable. As I worked the steps, it was just like less and less reasons to. And, and today, I have an abstinence that's taken me through, takes me through everything and everywhere. What I mean by that is... Um, the last six, seven years of my life, 
uh, I spent a lot of time going back and forth to France, which is where my family's from, my dad. And uh, my father especially, uh, I went back to see him for the last six and seven years because he was very ill. He was ill off and on for this whole time. And I've been to meetings in Paris, and they have English-speaking meetings. Um, And I needed an abstinence that I could take home, that would work at home. And I needed an absence that would work when uh, when my cat, Binky, died, who I had for 20 years. I needed an absence that could take me through that. And I needed an absence that could take me through my former boyfriend and my father dying within two weeks of each other a, week, a year and a half ago. I needed an absence that could take me through that. Um, so... That kind of abstinence means there are very few rules. That kind of abstinence means there's a big higher power. And that kind of abstinence means that I have to keep very close to that higher power and to trust, no matter what, that it's going to be okay. That I am taken care of. Um... Because my tendency when something emotional happens, whether it's good or bad, is to want to go to the food. I'm a compulsive reader. That's what I want to do. And so for me to not destroy myself with food, I need to have a higher power that can take me through anything. And an abstinence that's not so strict or regulated or has so many rules that I'm going to break them when something really big happens. So I keep it really, really simple. And the amazing thing is that it actually works. And the way it works for me today, how I work my program today, again, it's very simple. I wake up and I try to tune into a higher power before my head gets hold of me. Uh, Because my head wants to go to really dark places pretty easily. So I need to focus on, okay, we know that head is here, but who's going to be in charge today? Um, That's how I start my day. And serenity prayer can come real handy, and it's pretty simple. Um, And throughout the day, I will stop whenever I need to and take a breath and remember who is in charge, that divine presence that lives within me and surrounds me with great, deep love all the time, even in the midst of despair or difficulty. And every night I do a 10-step, which is continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. And a 10-step is... um, well, the way I do it is um, I write off what my abstinence is, then I list everything that I ate that day, and then um, what I did to take care of myself, what I did to be of service to other people, uh, what wonderful thing happened today, 
what I'm grateful for, and also what's going on emotionally. What are the feelings that are, you know, around me, in me? Um, especially if the food was different that day, especially if I ate more or I ate a lot of one thing or another, I'm like, oh, that's just um, an indication that something's up. So I get to write about it. Um, I have learned way more from, you know, I learned so much from the things I do wrong or the foods I eat. They tell me stories today, you know, like if I'm angry, what am I, what am I eating when I'm angry? <laughs> Nuts and carrots and stuff like that, crunchy stuff. Um, you know, do I want like, you know, soothing stuff, yummy kind of things? It just really connects to, okay, what's going on? What do you really need, sweetheart? Um, so... Even when I eat too much or I eat, you know, something that doesn't make me feel good, it's just an indication of what's going on. And it helps me when I write about it. And then I send that off to my sponsor every night. And then I'm done. Um, again, one of the hardest things in my recovery for me has been uh, night eating. And... And what I, what I found is that, you know, if I keep working the steps and keep connecting to a higher power and praying about it and talking about it, it doesn't necessarily totally disappear, like, from in one day. But I found that over time, it just lessened and lessened and lessened. As long as I keep my focus on my connection to my higher power, the biggest mistake I've made over and over again is focusing on my disease, focusing on my weight, or focusing on my food, right? They say here, like, what you focus on gets bigger. Usually, it's true. So, if I can shift my focus from whether it's the food or the weight or the fear or the anxiety to my connection to a higher power, um, I'm in much better shape. So, I think I'm going to end here and, and... just to wrap up, just um, say that the more I stay in gratitude, the more I stay in the truth, which is that there is a power greater than myself that has restored me to sanity, and that as long as I stay connected to that, then I'm free. And that's the truth. And last but not least, and that gets um, reaffirmed to me in many different ways, is that miracles happen here all the time, every day. Um, Because where I come from, um, I should be dead. And I'm here, and I have a life, and... And I have a a lot of joy inside me. Just as much as I've had grief and pain, I am a fully feeling human being today. And I think, you know, that's what I was most afraid of, is to feel all these feelings because they felt so big, so, so big. So 
Thank you very much. Yes, um, if, if anyone has questions, uh, yes. I wanted to know if you would share um, kind of what the process was to you being closer to your God, creator, whatever you call that for you, your higher power, um, how it started and how it sort of changed and um, yeah, what your spirit Okay. What, how I got closer to my higher power. Um, well, it was sort of desperation, I would say. You know, it's like, you got to get close to your higher power or you're going to die. So that's a good incentive. Um, and, uh, you know, okay. One of the very first things I remember doing, because I, I didn't know what to do, because I knew it had to be different from what I grew up with, and I knew it couldn't be, you know, parental in the way that I had experienced it. And I had this um, woman uh, writer, I was reading an article about her, and she's like, she always says, um, she has this line where she says, when people say, oh, she's bigger than life, her response is like, how can you be bigger than life? You're as big as life. Life is big enough. And I always loved that line. And I was reading an article about her, and she had these, she had these hands like that, opened hands, big hands. And I remember, and it was just so, you know, instinctive, I cut out her hands, and I colored them in different colors. And then I had a picture of myself where my eyes were closed, and I put, and I put this face of myself in these hands. Right? And that was my first idea of what kind of higher power do I want. It was just, I had to make it physical for me to have like a little picture of it, and I used to look at this. And from where I was, it seemed kind of far away, but at the same time, because it was my face in there, it was like, Okay, maybe there is, there are these hands that are holding me, and I think that's what my my first, you know, instinct was to do that. And then, um, in terms of a higher power, um, I I found um, nature was a really important connection to me. And then, um. Slowly but surely, as I worked the steps, I started hearing this little voice inside that was way different from the voice in my head that I, that I used to hear that was so devastating and mean. And it was a voice that was loving, that would look at me. I mean, I was shocked to no end when one day I looked at myself in the mirror and I heard in my head, Hi, sweetheart, how are you? <laughs> oh, my God, who says that? You know, and when I heard that, it was like, okay, there's a divine presence within me that doesn't hate me, you know. And then I started cultivating that, right? And that's the voice that lives in in, in the heart, as opposed to in the head, for me. Thank you.